Hey, it's John Ingle, and I'm excited to share that registration is now live for Grid Tech Connect Forum California. Join us in Newport Beach June 24th through the 26th for the interconnection event. We're bringing together utilities, developers, regulators, and advocates to take on one of the biggest challenges facing the energy transition, both at the DG and utility scale levels. Click the link in the episode description and use promo code PODCAST to save 10% on admission. Join our partners from the Department of Energy, NREL, Southern California Edison, PG&E, Kaiso, Sunrun, NG, Convergent, AES, and so many more for this impactful event. We'll see you there. It's been more than 600 days since the lights went out for millions of Texans during Winter Storm Uri. The near total collapse of the Texas grid can be attributed to a number of culprits, and there's been no shortage of finger-pointing about who deserves the most blame. Promises were made that what happened in February 2021 would never happen again, and a market redesign that's now underway is supposed to be the solution. I'm John Engel, Content Director for Renewable Energy World. To better understand what's happening in Texas and what's to come, this week's episode of Factor This is a crossover with Renewable Energy World's Texas Power Podcast, hosted by Doug Lewin. Along with Doug, I'm joined by Caitlin Smith, who's the Senior Director of Regulatory, External Affairs, and ESG at Jupiter Power, a developer, owner, and operator of battery storage assets, and Mark Stover, who's the Director of State Affairs for developer-turned-independent power producer Apex Clean Energy. That's all next on Factor This from Renewable Energy World. Well, Doug, Caitlin, and Mark, thanks uh, to you all for joining the the Factor This Texas Power Podcast crossover. Good to see you all. Thanks. Thank you. Good to see you. Thanks. Well, and this is a good group, so I don't want it to start off like, uh, you know, quiet and... um, very serious because for the last 30 minutes, you all have been catching up and, and reconnecting as, as really the, the cohorts of the Texas energy, you know, lobby and, and capital crew. Um, how often do the three of you actually cross paths? Not enough. I like these two people very much, but, uh, you know, but, but I see them, I see them a bit. I wish I saw them more. Yeah. I, I could say the same. I actually don't see you guys much in the capital. Caitlin and I, I think have the same lobby team. So we see each other's contract lobbyists probably more than we see each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't think we see each other enough, but. Well, you're welcome for this, this opportunity to bring <laughs> you all John. together. It's not, it's not an intervention. It's a podcast. Um, but, but you all do have some very good perspectives on what we're talking about today and this, this market redesign that's underway in Texas and really just a, a massive transformation that's happening in the state, um, you know, in the wake of, of winter storm Yuri. And this podcast, this conversation is not going to be about, you know, necessarily the causes of Yuri or who was at fault or where to cast the blame. That's that's been done. Those those debates are have been had and are, are still being had. We really want to look forward and, and see where the state is going, where the market is going. Where where are we at? Just if you can do a level set of um, all these moving parts in response to the storm, what's what's the best status update if you were to give one? We all just stare at each other. Um, yeah, well, I was like, who wants to jump in first? With market design specifically, or just kind of all post-Yuri reforms? Wherever you want to go, Caitlin, this is your show. 
You, oh, okay. Caitlin, you go. Well. I'll, I'll follow you. <laughs> you know, I, I think we are in a little bit of a of a limbo. Um, you know, we we had the storm, obviously, and and you know, when we see each other at the Capitol, and unfortunately or fortunately, it's usually for only six months every two years. And then there's some interim hearings. And of course we had special sessions last year, although not on electricity. So we happened to be in a session when, when Yuri happened. And so the legislature had a couple of months really to, to learn the material and identify what needed to be addressed and, and address it as they saw fit. And since then, you know, there's been a lot of work happening at the, the levels below them. So the state agency, the public utility commission, and then at ERCOT. But I, I think as far as market design, we are awaiting the, the second part of, of market design. It's literally called phase two. And so in the interim, we're in kind of a weird limbo state. You know, that's not to say we haven't done anything since, since Yuri. I think we've talked about weatherization and coordination and communications and all the things we have done. But as far as if and what a, a larger scale market design change will be, that has not happened yet. Um, I, I think that's good and bad, right? I think from a legislative perspective, you want them to legislate something that addresses the issues, but isn't so prescriptive you know, for two reasons, because they might not have the expertise. And then the second reason being, then you can only change it in law, right? So if you put really prescriptive numbers or details into law, then they can't be changed until next session. And that's that whole process. Um, so, so I think it's good that they stopped at a certain point and then we took it to the public utility commission and got stakeholder comment. And I think it's good. We are, are studying things. But in the interim, we are kind of in this this weird stage. Um, I, I know I've spoken already past my minute, but I, I think we we can talk later about conservative operations. But we're kind of in this stage where we don't have the final destination, or we're not at the final destination. So we're having to kind of have a you know not a made up plan, but a kind of interim ad hoc what's available to us plan. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. I think Yuri forced a conversation that was long overdue, quite frankly. Um, I think we needed to have a conversation about where the ERCOT market or how the ERCOT market has evolved over the past 20 years, take a look at where we are in this particular moment outside of, of Winter Storm Yuri, and and take a, a look ahead and, and take a real deep dive, um, and analyze where we're headed and and you know, of course, that involves conversations around climate change and the energy transition that we're going through right now. You know, Texas is, is like the rest of the nation. We're moving through that transition. It's it's one that is mainly seeing the large scale deployment of lower cost emissions free technologies, uh, technologies which can be developed on a shorter time frame than traditional generation, uh, thermal generation. Um, and this transition is is driven by the desire to decarbonize the power sector. Um, also to, to bring down uh, pollution and, and costs for consumers. So, you know, Yuri kind of hypercharged and certainly politicized the conversation a little bit, but I think it was long overdue. I'm glad that we're having it. And I would agree with Caitlin. We're in a little bit of a holding pattern right now. We've made some market design changes. Whether or not we've seen those actually play out is maybe up for debate. 
Um, and then what do we need next? If, if anything, uh, my company is a very data driven company. I'm a pretty data driven lobbyist. And so I like to look at the data on a regular basis. And I think, um, you know, there, there has been a lot of activity in the market since URI, some of it undoubtedly driven by policy, but the market has responded as well. Um, and you can simply take a look at the ERCOT queue over the past year to see what's happening there. We are developing new gas. We're developing, obviously, a lot of wind and solar and energy storage. Energy storage is a dispatchable resource. Some folks may need to be reminded of that, but it is dispatchable. You know, if you look at the queue right now, solar leading by far, then energy storage, then wind, then natural gas. So a lot of exciting technologies are being deployed right now. Some of these activities are going to be supercharged by uh, the IRA and some of it also potentially by Texas policy. So uh, I'm with Caitlin. I think uh, we've, we've got a long road ahead and it's going to be an interesting session. Uh, no doubt about that. These conversations will continue. Hey, Factor This listeners, it's John Engel. I wanted to let you know that you can now watch every new episode of the Factor This podcast on YouTube. Just search Renewable Energy World and leave a rating and review while you're there. Thanks for listening. Mark, I, just real quick, John, if you don't mind me jumping in, you know, um, there's been a lot of discussion at the PUC and legislature and at conferences that we're just not building enough dispatchable. We're not building enough dispatchable. And sometimes people, to your point just a minute ago, it's dispatchable is synonymous for them with gas plants or maybe gas and coal plants. To your point, storage is very dispatchable. And you posted something uh, on Twitter recently that over the last year, just shy of about 4,000 megawatts of gas and storage have been deployed on the ERCOT grid. Um, I don't know if you have that number in front of you. It was like 3,700 or something like it's basically an Austin. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. 3,983. And, and that, you know, I just looked oh. at the ERCOT um, generator, uh, the GIS generator Interconnect. interconnection status report. I, I, yeah. We yeah. can look that up later and plug that in. But um, that that's ERCOT's monthly report about the queue, what is in development. And you see a wide range of projects in, in the queue. I mean, if you look at, at the queue kind of from a, a generic perspective, we have 150,000 megawatts in the queue. I mean, that's a complete replacement of the existing grid. That's obviously not going to happen. What we try to do when we take a look at the queue and analyze what's real is we take a look at the projects that are very advanced stage. They have an interconnection agreement with their transmission utility. Um, they've passed through a number of studies. Now, even some of those projects don't make it across the finish line. But I think when you get towards the, the back end of the ERCOT queue, it is one uh, accurate way to look at, you know, what I would say, what what is real. And, and we're seeing really robust activity. I mean, even if you look a little bit um, further back in the queue, so projects that are maybe mid or mid to early late stage, you see 8,000 megawatts of natural gas in there. 5,000 megawatts happen to be located in some load zones that have a lot of congestion right now. You're seeing some remote natural gas. You're seeing some natural gas um, in, in our urban centers. You're seeing more renewable energy near load in, in our uh, ur urban urban areas. And, you know, I, I, I state often that Renewables and natural gas are complementary. I think we're going to need some natural gas to get us through the transition. But how much do we need? How long do we need it? 
you know, what are the trade-offs? These are the things that policymakers need to figure out. Um, but we are seeing some really exciting gas development taking place right now. And I think once you pair that with storage and you pair that with more geographically diverse wind and solar, you've got a really nice resource mix that's going to benefit ERCOT. Let me just uh, also just add to the answer uh, to the question, rather, let me answer the question of what happened uh, post Yuri, what's been done and, and where are we headed? I think one of the biggest changes, I think Mark and Caitlin, you'd agree that has been made since Yuri um, are the is the change to the operating reserve demand curve. And for those that aren't in the market, that's basically a fancy way of saying scarcity pricing. As we get closer to emergency conditions, there's an adder uh, for generation. Mark and Caitlin can say this more precisely than me and, and, and correct me in a minute. But basically, they have made that a bigger payment and extended that further out away from emergency conditions. So there's more money now going into the market. Um, that is that is an expensive change. It also is a change that could be responsible for some of that new generation coming in. I don't know. It's a little bit of speculation, but it's a big change regardless. And then where we're headed is, uh, and Caitlin just referred to this, the, the, the phase two uh, market design reform. So there's sort of three main proposals on the table right now. One is the load serving entity obligation, which my characterization of that is I think it, it and, I, and I've studied this quite a bit and read up a lot on it. It is the closest to basically a California style resource adequacy slash capacity market. It's probably a six month or, or one year kind of forward capacity market. There's the dispatchable energy credits which would be available as as it was proposed only to gas and batteries, but I think probably could be expanded to include some demand response or, or load flexibility, uh, potentially. Uh, we could talk more about that one. And then there's a third one that is the BRS, sometimes called Backstop Reliability Service, sometimes Backstop Reserve Service, but basically the same thing. And that is basically taking old probably mostly gas plants that would otherwise be retiring and put putting them into a reserve, sort of a break glass in case of emergency. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that the really interesting thing here is that like these solutions are being contemplated for two very different problems. One, a summer problem, one, a winter problem. And maybe that's something we should dive into a little bit more because I think the BRS is probably a pretty good uh, winter solution, whereas the dispatchable energy credit is probably more a summer solution. But I'd love to get y'all's thoughts on that. And and then, John, I know you got a list of questions. Sorry to jump in with my own question, but no, that's okay. We're we're essentially co-hosting it. Let's there let's be go. honest with <laughs> ourselves. There um, you go. Yeah, I don't want to I don't want to step on your territory either. Yeah, well, I'll defer to Caitlin on this one. I you know she's more involved yeah. with her workout than I am, so go for it. Yeah, no that. That was really good, Doug. That was, that was, uh, I like the way you put that. I wouldn't have said all those things. Um, I just wouldn't have thought everything that way. The LSC obligation is closest to resource adequacy and CAISO. And it's, it's, you know, it's maybe people would say the people who say it's not a capacity market, it's because it's not a centrally cleared market, right? It's, it's these, you serve load, you would have a, requirement to procure enough capacity a year or a season ahead to serve your load. And you would do that through a bilateral agreement, which, you know, has potential to cause other issues, right? There there could be some 
market power issues with the people who who can offer the generation for those bilateral agreements. So it would need to be pretty heavily regulated and structured that way. The dispatchable energy credits, I believe you're right. I believe it was kind of designed to um, incentivize really quick gas, so peakers and, and battery. And when you're looking at that one, I think it is most literally trying to solve the, the problem or the proposal, put new steel in the ground, right? It's kind of a pro, it's only for new units. And so it, it's putting new things in the ground. And then the backstop reserve, as you said, it might be targeting older units. Um, so it's kind of doing the opposite. Do, do we know if that puts new steel in the ground? Maybe, and, and probably it does, because by putting those backstop reserve units into kind of that break class and case of emergency, I think you are able to preserve the existing energy only market a little bit better. You you remove those, you create, you know, some of the price signaling that that does incentivize new generation. And so that that's kind of where I would look, right? If if we we're talking about keeping our energy only market, we do really revi- rely on price signaling to to create reliability, you know, for better or for worse. I I was in a meeting and somebody said, you know, I I think the batteries, they just want to make money. They they don't want to provide reliability. But I think the fact that we are in this energy only market and it's designed incredibly specifically, I know Mark's going to get into this later with transmission, you know, we price specifically to the location. So hopefully you are sending those price signals, you know, exactly when and where you need power. And and I think that's good. But of course, we do need to look at, at ensuring that we have whatever enough means an, enough dispatchable generation. Yeah, I'll just comment on, on storage. You mentioned um, ancillary services in there, I, I think. Yeah. Um, and, and Doug, I think maybe you tweeted about this the other day, but in the most recent ERCOT board report, there were, or actually it was the summer performance review that ERCOT put out. There was some, some really interesting information on the growth of storage and where storage is really participating in this market right now. And you saw tremendous growth in ancillary services for batteries. Um, you know, I think you're just going to continue to see that. Um, at the same clip, I don't know, it took a pretty big jump, but we didn't have much of a battery market a year ago. Uh, we have uh, yeah. a lot of growth in that space right now. But I think that um, when when you look at dispatchable resources, um, you know, there's certainly going to be interest in, in longer duration um, battery plays. And Caitlin, I don't recall specifically where your focus is right now, if y'all are one or two hour deployment. Um, Apex is looking at a fairly wide range right now. We we seem to be most focused on two. Um, but that kind of takes us back to the discussion of what do we need in this market? And as we move forward and, and take a look at all of these proposals or maybe some hybrid, it kind of sounds like maybe the commission is going to you know sprinkle um, elements from all of these proposals into a new package. Who knows? Um, you know, I, I think that the, the the solution, well, first of all, we have to identify, very clearly identify what the problem is, um, figure out what we're trying to solve and create a solution, I think, that 
not only responds to that specific problem, but one that is also flexible, allow it to grow over time if we need it or allow it to shrink over time if the market responds. Um, I, I feel like some of the policy discussions have just gotten a little too boxed in on a solution, but we haven't really run the in-depth analysis, crunch the data to figure out what that solution looks like. Maybe this isn't a great way to put it, but when I look at it, you know, do we have a 1000 megawatt problem for 20 hours a year, 30 hours a year as we move through the transition? Or do we have a 5000 megawatt problem over 1000 hours a year? I don't know. I'm guessing it's probably, you know, the, the, the first example I threw out there kind of you know, if you look back at when we've had some tight conditions in the market, typically three things happen. You got uh, low resource output from renewables. Um, you've got higher than anticipated thermal outages, forced outages, and then you're off on on the load forecast. And when those things all those three things all come together, you can you can run into a little bit of a bumpy patch. But historically, those have all been fairly short duration. And, and haven't really involved a lot of megawatts. But how does that look going forward with climate change, which impacts the ability of all resources to perform in the market um, and this energy transition that we're going through right now? You know, I think we just really need to have some flexibility as we craft these solutions. And we need to continue to have this conversation. I said recently, you know, we're, we're not going to pick a solution right now and just stick with it. This market is so dynamic and it is evolving, not, not only from the generation side, but from the load side. Doug, I know you're big on energy efficiency and demand response. We need to do much more in, in that space. But the way we're using our electricity is, is shifting. I mean, there's been recent talk about the, the load growth we've seen in ERCOT coming out of COVID. And it's it's shocking. I mean, we have serious load growth occurring in this state, but you also have load patterns starting to shift with electrification. And so we've got to think about those things going forward as well. They both brought up storage and I haven't talked about it yet. Um, so I currently work for Jupiter Power and we are developing utility scale standalone storage projects. And, and we've been doing that for a while. We have 650 megawatt hours in the ground. One of those projects is, is 200 megawatts. And then I've been talking about a, another 200 megawatt project we're, we're building in, in Houston, which is really exciting. It's in an urban center. Um, I, I say that to say, during URI, I think there was 220 megawatts total of battery storage on the grid. And so now companies like me are building that in one project. I believe when we were looking at February weather this year with Landon, we were at, you know, about a gig over that, maybe 1200 megawatts. By the summer, we were at 10 times what we had during URI, maybe 2000 megawatts. Uh, of storage. And I think by the end of the year, we will hit probably that, that three gig mark. And so that is something that I think, you know, Mark is talking a lot about, you know, policy versus what the, the market is doing. And I think the market has been doing that since Yuri. And I know, I think when we get into some more, you know, controversial policy recommendations, sometimes the market is doing that already in a palatable way. You know, we talk about batteries providing ancillary services. And then kind of the next question I always get is, well, is that market going to be saturated? And I think there is also opportunity for, you know, what you call arbitrage and ERCOT going back to the energy only market using price signals to tell you when you're needed. And I think that does things like, 
what an ancillary service would do, right? A, a new ancillary service that we were talking about, um, I think the commissioners envision using it mostly as a kind of sunset ramp product. And we're already doing that, right? It makes the most sense for us to discharge it at sunset. And so I think in that way, the market is really providing you a more palatable option to something like a firming requirement because they are indicating that batteries should show up, you know, in something like the sunset to supplement the solar power that's going off at the same time. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I know, John, Doug, you probably want to ask some questions, but I'm going to respond to Caitlin here. <laughs> I, you're totally correct. We do not want to get in the way of the market. And I can talk a little bit about what we're doing right now. And I think IRA is really going to have an impact on the these activities. When you look at energy storage in ERCOT, you've got standalone projects. Uh, that's what Jupiter's doing. A lot of other companies are doing. There's tremendous value with those. But we also are seeing co-location. So you're seeing storage deployed at solar projects. And for a while, federal policy really only incented co-location at solar. Um, I think with IRA kind of um, loosening up um, uh, some of the, you know, the guidance around where um, tax credits flow for storage, you're going to see a real uptick in energy storage at wind facilities. In fact, my company's in the process right now of building some energy storage at an existing coastal wind asset. And coastal wind assets are really nice because you've got great peak power production out of those assets. They operate a little differently than what you might see up in the panhandle, for example. But when you start looking at storage in these three different buckets at solar plants, um, at wind farms, on a standalone basis, sprinkled in remote areas, urban centers, there's a lot of value creation right there for ERCOT. And, and I would argue that you know a, a, a lot of it has been market-driven, um, but policy now, federal policy, is going to give it a little extra boost. And that's going to be good for the grid and it's going to be good for consumers. And we'll get to a little bit more on the Inflation Reduction Act in just a second. But just to put a, a bow on the, the market redesign conversation that we were having, I know that, Caitlin, you said that you know we're kind of in a, a holding pattern right now as we wait for some of those uh, finer details. And Doug laid out sort of the, the three-pronged redesign scope. Um, what is the biggest shoe to drop for each of you based on, you know, your work and focus? Is there anything that rises to the top versus some of the other components of the redesign effort? Well, I think we got to see what the consultant says. I mean, we're, we're, we're I guess, going to get a proposal any week now from, from E3 about its recommendations to the commission. And we'll, we'll see where that goes. I think as, as, as time has gone on, um, you, uh, I, I think you're seeing more folks express the opinion that perhaps we don't need a phase two or that maybe let's kind of slowly move forward with a phase two. Let's see how the market responds to phase one. Let's see what the market does on its own. Let's see how the market responds to IRA. And I think you're seeing that in the capital with some of the recent hearings. A lot of members are saying, you know, hey, Slow down there. Let's take a look. Anything that your consultant comes up with, anything that you guys come up with, commissioners, please send to us and, and we'll figure out if this is something that, that Texas needs. Um, but I think that is kind of the next big moment at this point. We've got to see what phase two is all about. Yeah. You know, I, I think I have a couple of thoughts here. The logistical one is I think what makes this difficult for me, because I get asked from counterparts who are 
you know, largely out of state. I'm not sure we know where the shoe is going to drop or or what shoe it is. Um, The Mark Mark referenced a report um, that that was commissioned by the Public Utility Commission. I don't know if that specific report was in in the Senate bill, but it's it's been ingrained into the process that the Public Utility Commission is doing. Um, the, The legislature has indicated that they would like to weigh in on market design. And so I'm kind of unsure, you know, what is this report going to say? Who Who's going to listen to it? You know, is the PUC going to make a decision? Is the, the legislature going to make a decision? Um, is, is, you know, somebody out of nowhere going to have a bill for re-regulation or, or a bill for affirming requirement and, and try to make some deal, you know, get people to agree on capacity market versus firming requirement. And, and so it looks like a pretty complicated decision tree for me, um, which, which I think is hard. You know, I, I think regulatory uncertainty is something we can all agree is, is tough. And so I think that's part of this interim time we're in, you know, maybe I, I know Mark had numbers that we are seeing investment and we're still seeing that in the face of regulatory uncertainty. I'm sure everybody, you know, getting investors gets all kinds of, of questions on this. So, so here's what, here's what I think we're, we're going to see. I think there, the, the report, uh, that Mark and Caitlin were just talking about, uh, is being produced by E3. Um, you know, they are the same ones who put forward, uh, the LSEO and then they were hired to independently analyze their own proposal um, kind of bizarre. And so I, I think it is highly likely that, you know, it won't come as a shock to anybody that they say, Hey, the solution that we proposed was really good. And that's, they're going to, they're going to recommend a California style capacity market. As Caitlin said earlier, it's not a PJM or MISO style, uh, capacity market because it's not centralized. It's bilateral. So it's a little more like California and it, and it will, if there is what the, what happens in the LSEO is you basically say, if did you meet do you meet the uh, resource adequacy requirement? If you do, then there's nothing. There's like no cost because it doesn't do anything. But then in that case, you don't need it at all. Or there is a requirement, and then all the load serving entities have to go buy power. That ends up being very very expensive because of the market power concentration we have. So so I think. What, what is coming next beyond the report coming out then is a, there is a meeting on the calendar at the Public Utility Commission for January 12th, which they're calling the market redesign meeting or market design meeting, something along those lines. That is two days after the session starts. So there is a big question here. Again, Mark and Caitlin both alluded to this of legislators. Do they want to say, Hey, this market was designed by the legislature? If it's going to be redesigned, the legislature has to do that. That is not something you can't just take 25 years of, of a market and throw it out unilaterally uh, at the at the commission. So these, you know, the, the report coming out, the January 12th meeting, the legislature convening, those are all really important moments. And I think to the point Mark was making just a minute ago, we have seen 4,000 megawatts of dispatchable uh, resources in the market in the last year. So there's an open question. Do you really need a phase two or do you need like a phase one B? 
Maybe you need more of a reserve service to be ready for winter. Maybe you need some kind of a credit program to get some more and you know storage or whatever into the into the system. But do you actually need to fundamentally change and redesign the market when we are actually getting new resources in? Yeah, and let, I'll add. I kind of forgot my substantive points as I rambled on earlier. Um, I, I will add. I think in the report, we'll probably see different permutations of things, right? As Doug said, we're looking at, you know, something that might focus on old units and take them out of the market and they'd be there for an emergency in winter. We're looking at a proposal that puts new steel on the ground. We're looking at different things that solve different problems. And I think that's sort of a big question as well. It's, you know, do we need this? And when we do it, is it going to conflict with each other? Is it going to conflict with what we have already done? Because we have already made, you know, really significant market changes. D- Doug talked about the ORDC. The, the ORDC is essentially a, a price adder. So it, it's not a capacity payment, but it gives you a little bit of a buffer. Whereas a generator, you know that you are going to get more money in a scarcity condition. And what we did recently was lower our our max price possible, but kind of increase that adder. So instead of waiting until the emergency and you get the $9,000 and the adders and everything, now, you know, when you're maybe in more moderate conditions, but approaching those emergencies, you just have a more moderate price the whole time. So we already made a significant change, but that was based on the premise of the energy only market. In fact, the ORDC is something we did about 10 years ago instead of going to the capacity market. So if we have made all these decisions already, right, changing the price cap, changing the ORDC, you know, doing some demand response work, that is all kind of moot if you just change what the premise is based on. And so I think that's something you need to keep in mind as well, right? That those things that we have spent since Urion so far are based on the premise of the energy only market. And so if you kind of change it or, or add three different things to it, you got to think about what incentives that's going to create when you take that all together. And then the, the other thing I wanted to say is I think Mark noted maybe an increasing awareness that, that what we have is okay, right? And maybe we can target specific specific problems. And so I think we are looking at, we're implementing a new ancillary service. The the independent market monitor um, proposed an additional new one. And I think that those things are are things we could rely on for some incentives and then maybe something like a backstop to solve a winter problem. And so I I think that there is, you know, I I think that that E3 proposal, as, as Doug noted, is probably baked because they went into it with a direction on a couple different proposals and, and one they wrote. But I think that there are still talk about alternatives um, and, and things we can do to keep the existing energy only market, but really have it address those problems. And, and I'm talking about, you know, uncertainty ancillary service products and things like that to get a little in the weeds. Yeah, I agree. I'm glad you brought up policy compatibility because I certainly, as, as we've gone through the policy discussion since Yuri, there have been times where I've thought, well, 
this product looks a little bit like that product or looks like something that I thought we had already solved. So yeah. I, I, I certainly hope that as we go forward, we're really taking a look at how all of these changes will interact and, and hopefully come together to, to provide more reliability. I mean, you know, look, reliability is not up for debate. We all want a more reliable system and we all, I think, understand there is a cost to do that. But how do you balance out, um, you know, reliability with cost to consumers, with our needs to decarbonize the electricity sector, as well as other sectors, uh, you know, a, a lot to chew on. Yeah. And Mark, you are much more well-versed on transmission policy than me, but that that's something I bring up when I get or am asked for feedback on that, right? The transmission system needs for a capacity market are not going to look the same as transmission system needs for uh, an energy-only market where people are a lot more discerning and exactly where and when they are locating certain resources. Yeah, you know, and, and maybe we can shift the transmission here for uh, a moment here. Thank you for that, Caitlin. But, I, you know, if you if you look at kind of where we are, I, I think, you know, the, the listeners hopefully know the transmission story in Texas right now. We're seeing... Um, you know, record after record be broken in 2020 uh, congestion um, uh, curtailments of projects, particularly solar. Uh, it's been a pretty rough year for for curtailments. Wind less than solar, but you know, when you look at solar being a, a peak product, you don't want that curtailed. The congestion numbers. I don't think we'll hit three billion. Well, we'll see. Um, I thought earlier in the year we would. I think in May we were at 700 million alone. That was a new record. It surpassed what we saw during Winter Storm Uri. Um, the, the costs have grown every year, and you know that that is a clear signal that the transmission system is not working for consumers, and it's not working for the generators that are on the grid. Obviously, you know, a lot of folks think about transmission as a renewable energy issue, but that isn't entirely the case. A lot of people think that it's only a transfer issue, moving power from remote areas in the West to load centers uh, in in the East and Central Texas. That is not the case either. We've got intrazonal issues. We've got interzonal issues. And, And the way that we plan and approve transmission projects in Texas is quite frankly very different than other electricity markets. We've got a process that is too narrow in scope. It really undervalues the benefits of new transmission and it takes too short of a view. We, I think what we've been arguing over the past few years is that we have a just-in-time uh, transmission planning process. We do a lot of reliability projects, band-aids, kind of slapping them around the grid. We're not doing anything on economic transmission projects. We've approved two over the last 12 years. And, you know, when you look at market design, we've heard a lot that we need to move away from a crisis-based market design. And I think folks would agree with that. So to complement that, I think we need to move away from a just-in-time transmission planning process. Transmission bottlenecks can um, harm thermal. Um, but, you know, when you, you look at congestion, that's trapped power. That's power, cheaper power, typically, that's not getting delivered to where it is needed. But when when you have curtailments and when you have the levels of congestion that we're seeing, it really 
harms the wind and solar asset. And that has a ripple effect down at the community level, because when those assets are devalued, that's less money that potentially goes out to the landowners who are leasing their land for these facilities. That's potentially less tax revenue to communities where wind and solar projects are operating. These, you know, t- this tax revenue is bringing new services and infrastructure and, and funding for schools to these districts. So there's more to think about than just simply the delivery of, of power. Um, we, I think, need to build more headroom in the system, more resiliency, more redundancy, more flexibility. We've got to get a transmission system that's going to better grow with our economy and the evolving nature of our grid. Can I just say that this this conversation about uh, transmission constraints is dedicated to friend of the program, Dr. Joshua Rhodes, <laughs> um, well-known energy Twitter we participant. Josh, yes. Absolutely. Oh, I'm going to yeah. test. Yeah, I know you do. I'm going to call Josh and test his knowledge on uh, transmission. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, could be doing more study work right now, actually. Yeah. Before before you uh, ask the next question, I just want to just based on what Mark just said, there was a quote and I'm basic I'm paraphrasing. But basically what Commissioner Kobo said when they were discussing the transmission rulemaking that's underway now, she said something along the lines of today's economic transmission problems or tomorrow's reliability problems. And mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. problem with having a just in time transmission system is it takes six years if you're that's, moving at yeah. warp speed. Right. So right. you can't. Right have a just in time you have to you have to look at the economic ones get those moving through the system so they can't turn into reliability problems there is that rule making open i'm i'm, I'm mm-hmm. hopeful they're going to address that but not not super optimistic well, but can i can i add one tiny thing on that i just because that, that you know uh the today's failed economic projects or tomorrow's reliability projects in 2013 ERCOT hired brattle to assess its transmission planning process and to come up with a number of recommendations. And in that study, ERCOT staff worked with Brattle to run some scenarios. In one scenario, they ran kind of a hypothetical around a nearly $300 million economic transmission project and taking a look at that project over a longer time horizon to better capture all of the benefits that flow from transmission projects, because these are 30, 40, 50 year assets. And as as time goes on, those benefits increase. The costs obviously go down with depreciation. So, you know, take a long look at the benefit stream from that project and inject it into the system. So when ERCOT runs this analysis, they're looking at a certain number of new plants that meet qualifications. They're looking at transmission lines that are not yet on the system, but have been approved. They inject the new transmission line that they're reviewing, and then they run system analysis. They they simulate what the grid will look like. And in this particular case, a $300 million economic line avoided, completely avoided the need for, um, uh, I think it was five future reliability lines and deferred the need for two of them. And the net benefit to consumers was $1.1 billion. So you had a great uh, you know, benefit to cost ratio on that particular project. But that case study right there, and unfortunately, we didn't implement any new transmission policy after the study that, that brought a work on with ERCOT. But you know, that case study right there proves Commissioner 
Kobos's point. And, and, you know, look, we've seen it in the real world. Reliability projects can bring economic benefits, economic projects, even though we haven't a whole lot had many of those, they also bring reliability benefits and, and resiliency benefits. I know that's something that the commission is discussing right now. So, you know, our, our view is we simply need to get this economic planning transmission or economic uh, project uh, process back on track to, to get us moving forward. So we've got a more robust grid and I think a more robust grid benefits all new technologies. I know we wanted to also talk about the impact of the Inflation Reduction Act on Texas and and both of your companies. I do think there's a smooth transition here in that, um, you know, with all that the Inflation Reduction Act does to spur clean energy deployment, the one you know, missing piece or criticism, I guess, that seemed to come out early on was the lack of a credit, uh, an ITC for for transmission build out. Mark, do you have thoughts there on on how that affects, you know, Apex and just this broader conversation? Um, I, I mean, I, I, I think that um, it, well, certainly would have been nice to, to see that. But I, I think if we get some transmission policy reform, um, we'll, we'll, we'll be able to move transmission forward in Texas and in uh proper manner. Um, you know, I, I don't do federal affairs work anymore, so I don't know why that was left off the table. Again, I think it would have been nice to see some incentives for, um, transmission. Um, but, uh, I, I, I think we'll still be able to find a way to make it work in Texas. Your company had had some exciting announcements, even, you know, months and months before that legislation came out as it, it refers to green hydrogen and, transmission projects that would connect you know, Central Texas wind to um, green hydrogen production in the Gulf. How are you viewing that now just in the wake of the, the legislation? Well, I, I, I think IRA certainly, um, uh, you know, w- one element of that bill was to really help get the green hydrogen economy moving forward quickly. And, and it's important to do so. I think we've been very focused in this country on um, making the electricity sector less carbon intensive and, and we've made real progress, but, you know, now we need to turn to, to other sectors, um, transportation, uh, fuels, manufacturing, and, and that's where green hydrogen comes into play. Um, we're, we're making a, a fairly aggressive play at apex on, on green hydrogen with the projects that you just, you just referenced. Um, and I think that, you know, Texas certainly is in the position to dominate the green hydrogen market in the United States. Long and successful track record on energy. We've got the know-how, we've got the manpower, we've got the capital in this state, um, you know, robust infrastructure down on the coast. So I, I think Texas is going to be quite successful with green hydrogen. I certainly like the position my company is in right now in, in terms of the, the projects that we're pursuing. We're, we're very optimistic. And, you know, the, the, the PTC for green hydrogen production that is in um, the RA is certainly going to be beneficial. Caitlin, how about you and, and Jupiter? How you view the the impact of the IRA? Um, so the, the IRA, what it introduced for storage was the ITC for standalone storage. Mark alluded to this a, a little bit earlier. We were seeing a lot of storage co-located with solar because that was a, a way that you could get the ITC. Um, that was financed totally different than standalone storage. And, and it really, I think of that more as, a traditional solar resource, you know, plus that couple hours of battery. And it was financed in that way with, with a PPA. Um, first storage 
Couldn't quite finance it that way. Um, Still a little bit expensive on the technology. We are really proud of Jupiter to have already been developing it. So the the six projects still in the ground that I mentioned, the 650 megawatt hours are all pre-ITC. And and so we feel like we cracked that code, at least in ERCOT, right? We have the ancillary services and we have the energy arbitrage opportunities what it does for us is kind of allow us to de-risk some of our, our portfolio and provide new revenue streams. We also, um, you know, I'm really proud of being at Jupiter because when I read all these things about, you know, we're in the first or zero decade of storage, I have a lot of colleagues who've been doing storage for, for a decade almost. And so we, we think we know what we're doing and we got those projects in the ground. We have the queue positions in a lot of non-ERCOT places. It's a lot more complicated process just to kind of get in line to build. So we have good queue positions. We have permitting already in place. We have good relationships with vendors and manufacturers in place. So what we are hoping to do is take our leadership spot and continue to be a leader in some of these sort of bonus things with the IRA. In addition to that ITC you get for standalone storage, you can get an additional 10% for domestic content. So we're hoping to leverage those relationships and be able to bring, you know, more U.S. jobs and, and be a partner in domestic content that way, because we are in a position such that we can commit to buying. We, we had a press release recently, right? We're, we're committing to buying over two gigs of domestic content worth of storage projects. So we're hoping we can. You can read about that at RenewableEnergyWorld.com yeah. <laughs> as well. So yep. just, and then, just a quick, quick plug. Just a quick there, plug. Yeah. Yeah. And then the energy communities as well, right? I, I think yeah. under, you know, the caveat being we don't know exactly what's going to qualify, but we were looking at those areas already. And maybe we could do something like help someone cite their manufacturing also in that energy community and really have a great pipeline of things happening um, in the U.S. So that's kind of what we're excited about there. One more little note on that. I, I think, uh, you know, and I, I, I kind of mentioned this earlier, but I, I really think you're going to start to see a lot more storage at existing and, and future wind assets which is going to be of, of real benefit. You're going to firm that resource up a little bit. Um, and, you know, that kind of leads to another issue, which is repowering. We have a decent amount of the, the ERCOT wind fleet that is getting to the point where uh, these, these assets are looking at repowering. And that's going to be a tremendous benefit to Texas. You're going to get more capacity, better capacity factors, you know, better technology, less less cost power in the same footprint. And that also introduces a whole new, um, you know, 20 to 30 year revenue stream for landowners and, and tax payments to these communities. Now you're talking about pushing a lot more power, maybe two X, two and a half X power from these existing footprints. Probably going to have to look at some transmission transmission issues around that front because we already got some bottlenecks and you're about to drop a lot of new power into um, you know, some existing uh, facilities. So uh, transmission is, is probably going to be needed to, to really help repowering move forward. That was my question for Mark. You know, I, I think in transmission planning, that's not something I hear talked about a lot, but I think we are potentially looking at a lot of those wind farms repowering. And I think that, you know, makes changes the calculus on transmission planning even more. Yeah. And it, it you know, I also think that we're, we're going to have to take a look at how how you run through this repowering. I mean, if you're looking at 10,000 megawatts of generation that's on the grid right now, 
you're not just going to take that down in a couple months time and, and let the grid keep humming along. I think there's going to have to be a lot of thought put into how you decommission yeah. these facilities, planning. how you power up the new ones, a lot of planning that, that ERCOT's going to have to take a look at, but very exciting opportunity, especially if you start deploying storage at those wind assets. Well, and FERC is talking about, um, you know, standalone storage as a, as a transmission asset too, in their transmission planning, um, you know, NOPER and, I, I even that's separate from the IRA conversation, but I do think it's an interesting space for standalone storage developers like Jupiter. And Caitlin, I don't know if you would like to expand a little bit more on how Jupiter was able to successfully be a, a first mover there in, in ERCOT, even in the absence of a standalone storage ITC, along with some other players like, you know, I think about Broadridge Power and um, others who, who have been able to do it, but just interested to, to hear how that has worked. Yeah, Broadreach Power. And then, you know, I, I work pretty closely. I've, I've put together sort of a storage coalition because our, our interests are, are different, as you're alluding to, right? They're not the same as solar and they're not the same as gas and they're not the same as transmission and maybe overlap more there. So I'll give a, a shout out to, to I work with Hunt and Key Capture a lot. In, in ERCOT, you know, it is an, an energy arbitrage opportunity and an ancillary service opportunity. Um, so we, and I think most people who were building standalone storage were, were kind of doing that uncontracted, meaning you're, you're banking on those market signals, right? You're banking on that opportunity for, for arbitrage and you're banking on the ancillary services. And this is where it gets a little bit sticky with, with transmission, right? Certainly I don't think a battery can replace a interregional or very long transmission line and we need access to transmission to pump out our generation right. as well yeah. but we we can site in such a way right i'm in west, west texas right now where there is a lot of you know stranded wind that is constrained behind transmission and that is a really good place for a battery because when that wind is trapped and and you know I know ERCOT, everybody looks at the ERCOT heat map when that's blue or purple and the prices are really <laughs> low and nobody needs it and it's three in the morning, we can charge. And then, you know, maybe when that's red and you're having trouble getting power to folks and, and it's sunset or whatever, we can discharge then. So it's kind of a supplement there. Um, you know, I, I think it's really important in ERCOT where we have a competitive market and deregulated market to keep storage as a competitive generation asset because we can then use those price signals to tell us exactly when and where we are needed, which is ultimately, I think, cheaper for consumers. Um, you know, when I talk about this, hopefully this won't offend anybody, but when I talk about this um, Houston project we're building, I say, you know, it'll be, it's a great place for it. You don't have to build the Houston import project every 10 years, right? We're going to put 200 megawatts there and that'll help with that red that you see in Houston sometimes. And so I think there's a little bit of a different perspective there. My understanding with, with kind of FERC federal policy is you can use that as a, a both, right? Um, you can use it as sort of a transmission regulated rate of return asset or a competitive asset. It gets a little bit tricky when you're talking about trying to use revenue streams for, for both of those from run resource, right? Maybe you see you that in European markets with storage. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So I think that's kind of where we'd like to see the conversation 
evolve there and kind of make sure we we are being able to provide, right? If we have a contract with the utility and are providing that service for them, are we also able, able to capture the opportunities in, you know, PJM or whoever's ancillary service market? And I think that kind of blend is ultimately best for consumers. And I maybe my uh, labeling of Josh as this grid constraint expert was just him <laughs> tweeting out a couple of those heat maps and me being like, oh, he must have done a, a report or a study or something like that. Doug probably sent him the heat maps. He's got Josh. Josh has expertise. Josh has expertise in all of these. He asks me yeah. a lot of questions, though. So, so he's catching a lot of ricochets in this podcast. Yeah, yeah. It's a good thing we didn't bring him on. No, no, John. This is this is something. This is something people need to know. There's a lot of us running around that are called experts and whatnot. Really, we're calling Caitlin for information, and she she is she's the power behind. That's why I said uh, yeah. it's her show. There you go. There you go. It's it's her it's her. Work world we're all just living and now josh is never going to answer my call actually though let me let me actually mention one other thing about about josh since we're talking about him and hopefully we'll have him on the on the texas power podcast soon but he just yesterday released a study that showed the uh cost savings to the market from renewables and it's pretty eye-popping uh the headline numbers are 27 billion over uh 12 years which is impressive enough but 7.4 billion of that is through the first eight months of this year alone. So obviously, as the price of gas and coal have both gone up astronomically, the savings to the market from having as much wind and solar as we do have gone up. So that that'll give us the opportunity, John, to throw that study into the show notes. Um, yeah, just wanted to throw that in there. Yeah, well, I'm glad you mentioned that, Doug. You know, there there are some folks who like to complain about renewables in this marketplace, but if you chased us all away, you really might miss us when we were gone. Amen. I think we're on the same page, Mark. I always kind of say, you know, if you love or hate renewables, it's not the renewables that are the problem. It's sort of figuring out the planning around it, which I think you are are talking about with with transmission. Mm -hmm. And I will Mm -hmm. give Josh does know very much, um, you know, for an, you know, he's an academic and he knows a lot of operational things. This gets really complicated. You know, I've, I've roped him into helping with batteries, right? Because you think, batteries great for the energy transition right we we when we are generating we are net zero emit or we are zero emissions when we're generating but we are a charger so while the grid is a net emitter we are a net emitter and i really want to take a look at you know how are we helping renewables on the grid are are we you know you guys talked about the ERCOT board information with how much ancillary services batteries are providing. Are we replacing, you know, higher emitters? And it gets really technical. And, you know, this is my commercial for Josh. Josh is the person I call to help me with those very technical studies. So he very quickly got to West Texas and like looked over your shoulder, like very mafia-esque <laughs> to get you to, to say all of that. And he travels very quickly from uh-huh. Austin. Yeah. Yeah. He gets on that bike. He is always biking around. Well, it was great to have all three of you uh, part of this this podcast and talking about some very you know nuanced uh, issues facing the Texas market. So thank you for joining us. Thanks for joining us for another edition of the Factor This podcast from Renewable Energy World. Remember to subscribe and leave a review for both Factor This and the Texas Power podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Factor This is a production of Renewable Energy World and Clarion Energy. 
Join us every Monday as we break down solar's most important topics with industry leaders who actually move the needle. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Factor This from Renewable Energy World. Hey, it's John Ingle, and I'm excited to share that registration is now live for Grid Tech Connect Forum California. Join us in Newport Beach June 24th through the 26th for the interconnection event. We're bringing together utilities, developers, regulators, and advocates to take on one of the biggest challenges facing the energy transition, both at the DG and utility scale levels. Click the link in the episode description and use promo code PODCAST to save 10% on admission. Join our partners from the Department of Energy, NREL, Southern California Edison, PG&E, Kaiso, Sunrun, NG, Convergent, AES, and so many more for this impactful event. We'll see you there.